Um, we're humans and we make mistakes all the time. So I just grew up always worried that I was gonna get zapped at any moment, big lightning bolt and boom, I was gone, so. Uh, I also had a desire to be a soldier. Um, originally I wanted to be an archeologist because uh, growing up we watched movies and I watched the Indiana Jones series and more than anything I wanted to you know, be an, uh, an archeologist because I felt like I was gonna do all that cool stuff. And then somebody told me that you know, if you become an archeologist, all you're gonna do is uh, look at dry bones in the desert and that kind of turned me off a little bit. So I watched Rambo and Red Dawn and all those movies. I was like, awesome, I'm gonna be a soldier. So, um, you know, my dad was a career military uh, Air Force guy and my grandparents were in the service. And so I had a long lineage of military history to um, look up to and I, I wanted more than anything to be a soldier. So I went ahead and joined the junior ROTC program mostly because I wanted to be a soldier, but also to get out of taking PE, because I hated PE. And I was, so I didn't have to do PE, but um, I did all the things that I wanted to do, um, all the things that they asked me to do uh, to become a soldier when I graduated high school. So after completing the ROTC program, I was 17 years old when I graduated high school when I enlisted in the US Army. Uh, went to Fort Knox and learned how to be a cavalry scout, which was awesome. Got to drive big vehicles. I got to shoot guns. I got to blow up stuff with plastic explosives, throw grenades. Every boy's dream, you know, or most boys' dream anyways. And uh, I was having a great time. And uh, then I went to Fort Benning to jump out of perfectly good airplanes take, uh, at airborne school. And I broke my leg. So I didn't actually finish the course. And for some reason, um, instead of going to the 82nd Airborne in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, they shipped me to Fort Polk, Louisiana. And uh, it's not the end of the world, but you can see it there. From there is what most people say about Fort Polk. It was a very, very dismal place to be stationed. Um, I told my parents I was getting stationed there because we used to live in Louisiana. And uh, they were like, oh no, Fort Polk. So anyways, I ended up at Fort Polk. Um, I thought it was gonna be a good thing because the girl I dated in high school, um, her dad got stationed at Fort Hood, Texas, which is about six hours away. So I thought, okay, I'll be close to her. I can drive back and forth and visit her. And it wasn't long. Um, after I got stationed there, that that relationship ended. She decided that somebody else could give her more attention than I could give her because we were too far away from each other. And um, you know, right after high school, I was, I was still pretty young. Uh, the relationship that you get into in high school, when it goes sour, a lot of times you feel like your life is over. You know, it's over with. I just there was no reason for living. <laughs> um, all that angst, you know, teen angst. Um, so I went into a really, really deep state of depression, and a lot of my friends were noticing that, and they were like, hey, why don't you just come out with us, we'll party, we'll hang out, we'll get your mind off of this girl. So I was out one night at a club, and um, it was uh, about an hour away from where I was stationed, and we were all sitting there, and I noticed everybody else was having a good time, and I was still just kind of sad, and so um, somebody came up next to me and said, take this, it'll take it off your mind, it'll take your, all the depression away. And I had never drank before, never smoked, never done any drugs before in my life and I took the pill and ate it, and I didn't even think about it. I'm not sure why I did it, but I did it. And uh, it was a hit of ecstasy. And from that moment forward, my life changed forever. Um, I could not get enough of this drug. There were so many things that it did for me that I wasn't getting in my, in my natural normal life. It took away every pain, every bad feeling, every awful thought, and just made me feel like I was on cloud nine. It was all artificial, um, it was a medication, and when I came off, down off of that drug, all the pain, hurt, and discomfort of life crashed back in faster than I could handle it, and so I just continually kept taking more of that drug. I started taking it so much that I was taking it at work, I was taking it on the weekends, and uh, my friends noticed that I was able to get it pretty readily and pretty easily, so they would start giving me money in order to buy it in quantity and give it to them. 
So shortly thereafter, while on active duty in the military, I became a drug dealer. Um, I would sell so much of this drug that I was able to take as much as I wanted for free because they were giving me, uh, the dealer that I was dealing with would give me a certain amount for free for selling a certain amount. So um, I could take as much as I want and I never had to worry about it. Never had to worry about paying for it. Um, it was an escape. It was an escape from reality. It was an escape from pain and suffering. But you can't do something too long like that before getting caught. So I had um, a group of people that um, were kind of watching me because they had heard I'd been selling drugs, and it was the Criminal Investigation Division of the U.S. Army, which is basically the undercover cops. And they knew I was selling this drug, so um, they pulled me over on the side of the road, and they arrested me for having possession of this drug. They took me in, and they told me, if you help us out, we'll help you out, because you're going to jail. There's no way out of it. Um, but your time will get lessened if you help us out. And I said, sure, no problem. Um, I'd love to help you guys out, because I definitely want to go to jail for a long time. I'd never gotten in trouble before, so I was pretty scared. And I thought, you know, going along with them would be the best thing. Further down the road, um, it was probably about a week later, I went right back to Houston, Texas, which is where I was buying drugs from with my drug dealer, and bought a huge, huge shipment of drugs. Um, I forgot about the deal with the cops, came back to Louisiana, and then that night, the trailer I was living in with, this, with my roommate got raided. And this um, girl was taken away, and the cop asked me how come, they, how come I didn't help them out. And I said, well, I had no idea she had the drug. You know, I was lying and everything. But he told me to go back to the post, and after I was at, back at post, um, he would deal with me later. Um, I got a phone call from one of the other guys that got arrested, and he said he escaped. So he um, told me to come pick him up, and that night I just made the decision, I'm done with all this. I picked him up, and we disappeared, and I moved to Houston, Texas. So at that moment, I was AWOL from the Army. My unit shortly afterwards was deployed to Panama, and because I missed a combat movement, the Army listed me as a deserter. Um, while living in Houston, Texas, all I did was drugs. I sold drugs, used drugs, and I, it was a means of staying alive and a means of staying sane in, in my mind. And I, my life was spiraling so far out of control. My consumption increased to the point where um, I'm, I'm not sure how much I was taking every day, but I started to experiment with other types of drugs, and I started to mix and match them together all on the same day. And it was every day. So I was constantly medicated, constantly uh, becoming numb, and just, just being pretty far gone from reality. There was one night when I took so many drugs that I overdosed, and I don't really remember the night other than what other people told me, and so I'm lucky to be alive today. I lost sense of time, purpose, and reality. Money, drugs, and faces blurred, and I just was just a lost individual. Um, it was so bad that when I was walking around in the mall in Houston, Texas, parents would grab their kids and move them to the other side just to keep them away from me, um, and this was just because of my parents, and people would stop me randomly and say, man, what are you on right now? It was just terrible. Um, I started selling uh, more and more drugs to make more money, and uh, I was trying to, I had bills just like everybody else, you know, I was living in a place where I had to pay rent. Um, but I knew that if I went back to Louisiana, I could make more money, so I started traveling back to Louisiana, back to the same place that I got in trouble. Um, I had altered my appearance so I didn't look like the soldier that I was before I left. And um, when I went back to um, the post, uh, the more people wanted drugs that I could sell, so I started using runners, and at this point, my life was just a mess. It was so out of control. Um, and then one night, I decided I was just bored. I was sitting there, and me and uh, a friend of mine had 100 hits of ecstasy, and we decided to take those drugs and put them in little plastic baggies. I'd never done this before. 
and I was just bored, and I just decided I would do that. Um, but I did tell anybody if I ever got arrested that I would take every single drug in my pocket or wherever I had it, and I would just take myself out and go out into oblivion. I had no idea that that night I would be arrested. And so I feel like God knew, obviously God knew what was going on, but he wanted to save me and keep me from doing that. So the night I got arrested, I was in the nightclub, and I saw the cops coming to get me, and I was thinking, I can't take the drugs. They're all in baggies. What am I going to do? So I just threw my jacket on the ground, and they took me out of there. Um, I ended up in confinement, and that night I had a lot of thinking to do about what I'd done. Obviously, at the moment, I realized I was in trouble. Um, there was drugs in my system, so I wasn't all there, but I knew I was in trouble. I knew that my life was a mess, um, and I had a little moment with God where I was just saying, God, get me out of this. Please help me. But obviously, that, he wasn't really ready to do that yet. So um, for some reason, they asked me if I wanted to, um, if I went back into my unit um, just before the trial, if they let me back in my unit, would I run away again? Um, I had been gone for six months, and so I'm not sure why they allowed me the opportunity to go back to my unit. Um, I was waiting for my father to come to my trial. I asked that he be a character witness, and for some reason there was an issue with his flight, and he wasn't going to be able to make it in time for the trial, and I freaked out, and I left again. So I was AWOL again for the second time. Um, I decided that this time no one would find me, and if they did, they wouldn't take me alive. Um, my roommate at the trailer gave me a gun that she found in the trailer, and I said if anybody ever caught me, I would either shoot myself or attempt suicide by cop, which is where you shoot at the cops so that they kill you. Uh, I stayed in Dallas with some friends of mine for a week. Um, I didn't want to go back to Houston. I didn't want to go back to Louisiana. And at this time, I didn't know it, but there were people all over the world that were praying for me. And we have um, something here at Finding Life Church called Pray and Watch, where we will pray for people on, and that we really want to see God move in their life. And over time, we watch what God does. This is more like pray intervention. Um, because my family knew I was in trouble. The people that were praying for me knew I was in trouble, and they were like praying for me all at once. I had this huge pressure and this huge feeling all over my body, inside my soul and in my spirit, that I needed to do something. I got a phone call from the cop that arrested me. He got a hold of me and said, you need to turn yourself in. So I went ahead and did it. Um, I, I drove back to Louisiana, um, and I turned myself in to this special agent. This police officer decided in his heart, and I found this out later because I've reconnected with him, that um, he was a Christian at the time that uh, he arrested me, and I didn't know that. I thought he was just some crazy cop trying to bust me and take, turn my life upside down. But uh, he had a change of heart. He said if anybody ever burned him like I burned him, he would normally just let them, uh, you just let them go and get in trouble. But he decided he would help me out because something in his heart changed. I feel like God was telling him that there was a reason uh, for this guy uh, and there's a purpose, and something later is going to come. So he went ahead and uh, testified in my trial on my behalf and allowed me to work with him on a sting operation in which I was able to take down another drug dealer so that I could lower my sentence. And um, because of that, when I actually did have my court-martial, um, I had some leniency. And so I'm really thankful that he took the time and that God used him in my life. At my court-martial, my father did finally come because uh, this was I had moved the date by missing the trial. Um, but I got to sit there and watch my father. Um, he had official military orders to attend my trial um, of this disgraced soldier, which is myself. But he stood up in uniform and said, this is my son, I love him, and I will do anything for him. And uh, my father was modeling the love of our Heavenly Father, who would do anything for us at that time. Um, at that time, I was still sort of um, not a grown adult. I was very immature and, and probably didn't realize this until I started writing this book, how uh, much my father put on the line for me. 
Although he tried to save me, he wasn't able to. Um, God knew how much time I needed to spend in prison. So at sentencing, I received a five-year prison sentence, a reduction in rank to a private where they took away all my rank, and a dishonorable discharge. So at that point, I was labeled a dishonorable man by the U.S. government for the rest of my life. Took time, uh, a little bit of time to get me to Fort Leavenworth, but eventually I ended up in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, which is the U.S. Army prison. I can't explain to you what this place is like because if you've never been there, it, it's just it's an experience on its own. If you've ever been in any jail or any prison, um, then you probably will um, be able to understand a little bit. But this place was old and it was dark. And when I say dark, I'm not talking about like the lighting. There was a darkness in the air. It was a very heavy, heavy place. It was depressing. It was lonely. It was miserable. I had loss of freedom and no control. And I many nights sitting in a prison cell. I had a lot of anxiety and, and frustration and just you know, a lot of time to think about what I had done to get myself there. Outside my window, I could see the American flag and it was flying really, really high. And it wasn't mocking me, but I felt so low and so far gone because I had signed up my life. I'd signed up to uh, fight for my country. I signed up to defend the country and I disgraced my family, my country, and my God. Um, I had to be around all these other inmates. Um, there were some extreme personalities and murderers, rapists, child molesters, and uh, drug dealers, thieves. But it didn't matter because in the end, all sin is the same, and God looks at us all the same way. I tried to get into the barbershop, and you guys all know that I'm a hairdresser. I teach at a cosmetology school, and I thought, this would be great. I really wanted to do that, but I ended up in the mess hall. Um, I did not want to be in the mess hall, but that's where I ended up, probably because I didn't want to be in there. Um, so I had to cook food and you know, pots and pans and all that kind of stuff uh, in a dining facility for all these inmates. I tried to do all the programs that they gave me. There was reality therapy, drug and alcohol related instances. There were um, Narcotics Anonymous. There's so many different classes that you have to take in order to get out. And I did everything that they told me to do in order to push all the buttons to get out of jail. But I was still somewhat lost. Um, I did move up in custody, and as I moved up in custody, I had some more freedoms, and um, I still had to stay in the mess hall, so I wasn't able to get out of that job. I was working in the mess hall one day, and I had another inmate come up to me. He walked up to me, and we were alone in one room. There was a one, you know, like a dining room on one side and a dining room on the other, and there was no guards, and there was no other inmates in there. And he walks up to me and goes, hey, look what I have, and he put his hand out. It was almost like the same thing that happened in the club that night. There were two pieces of paper in his hand, one of them, or they were both hits of LSD. I don't know if he was offering it to me or showing it to me, but I took one. I had been clean for about a year and a half, and I'm not sure why I took that drug, but I took it. Um, that same day, well, I had to try and make it through that day uh, without being caught, and nobody noticed that we were on the drug, which was a miracle because we were completely messed up, both of us. But I walked back to my room, and I was up for my first parole board, and there was I was waiting on some paperwork from my family and from some other sources, but there was a letter sitting there on my bed, and it was from my dad. This was the exact same day that I relapsed on this drug. So I opened the letter, and inside the letter, there was a letter from my dad telling um, the people at the parole board what a good guy I was and how awesome of a son I was, regardless of my circumstances. But the line that got me the most was that he said that um, he would stake his job, his reputation, and his life on the fact that his son would never do drugs again. This was the exact same day. So I know uh, for a fact that God orchestrated that event um, because at that moment, I decided I would never do drugs again, and I haven't. Um, I have taken ibuprofen because I'm 47, and things are a little bit creaky. So, but as far as illegal drugs, I have, I have not ever done anything again. I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't do anything just because I feel like I will lose control again. Um, there's been many instances where I've had the opportunity, but I decided I can't do this anymore. I'm hurting other people. I'm not hurting myself. I'm hurting other people. 
and the people that love me. And, the pe and if I, my dad had to put himself on the line for me, I would have devastated him. So moving on a little bit further, um, I moved up in custody and I moved into a new um, area of the prison and had a lot more freedom. One of the things that I was able to have was a radio. And so I listened to a radio program. I know that's kind of crazy because nowadays we have podcasts and we have technology, but I had a radio with a CD player. It's kind of old. But um, I was listening to a radio program and I heard this guy talking about grace and forgiveness. And I had heard these terms before growing up, but those are huge words. Redemption, grace and forgiveness. What does that mean to a kid? doesn't mean anything, I mean, unless you're really smart, which probably I wasn't, so obviously I wasn't because this is where I ended up. Um, <laughs> so I uh, listened to this radio program, and the guy said um, to somebody else on the, he was talking to somebody, he said, when Jesus died for our sins, how many of them were in the future? And I was like, wow, that's crazy. It's a crazy thing to think about. Um, all of them since he died over 2,000 years ago. And the reason why that's so important is because he knew that every single sin that we would commit before we were born he knew every one of them, and he still died for all of us. Can you imagine taking on all of the sin of the world all at once and one moment? That's, it's just too much to fathom. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. He doesn't count anyone's sins against them when you, be, when you have a relationship with him. Romans 8.1, So that now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. I wasn't condemned to die, but I was in a state of condemnation by the army, and my family forgave me, but um, I just realized that God forgave me, and that is the biggest forgiveness that you can receive from anything or any time or anyone. After I read those and heard this radio broadcast, I ordered his book, and I read through it, and it was just full of this information. And as I started to read the Bible, and I don't know how many of you guys have read the Bible from cover to cover. It is not a requirement to be a Christian, Christian, just to put that out there. But I did it over and over again, thinking I was going to find the secret to life, or I just did it because I thought I was supposed to. I think it was up to five or six times at that point I'd read all the way through. But it didn't mean anything to me. It was just a book with a bunch of stories in it. But as I heard this message about grace and forgiveness and redemption, I found these verses literally all through the Bible. And that message just popped out over and over. It's like somebody went in overnight and rewrote the whole Bible just to show me that God gave, uh, forgave me. Um, eventually, I made a parole, and I did get out of prison. And life as a convicted felon was a little bit challenging. I had to suffer the consequences of my action. I applied for job after job, and I was turned down over and over again because of the little box I had to check. Have you ever been convicted of a felony? Yes. How long ago? Like, I just got out of prison yesterday. <laughs> and so they're like, oh, okay, well, maybe you aren't a good job, uh, a good representative for us. So um, eventually, I, I was able to um, have convinced somebody in person that if they hired me, I would work really well for them, and they let me go ahead and do that. And then I signed up for hair school, so I eventually was able to realize my dream of being a hairdresser, and that's shortly afterwards I took the instructor program and became a teacher. And so now I mentor um, young people, some people here in the audience, <laughs> um, who are uh, wanting to be hairdressers, and I love that job. So um, shortly um, after that, I met the love of my life, Lindsay, who's also in the audience somewhere. Okay. And I don't know if you guys know her very well, but if you know her, the reason why my life is awesome is because of her, which the Omaha World Herald misquoted me. Um, I said my wife is awesome, not my life is awesome. But anyways, <laughs> um, I, we started a family, and uh, shortly thereafter, 9-11 uh, happened. I don't know if you guys remember where you were on September 11th. Um, but I remember driving to work and hearing about what was going on. I remember that my parents were flying in the air that day and that my um, sister was in the air that day, and it was pretty traumatic for the whole country. I went to work, and as everybody else was watching what happened, 
and people started to go to the recruiter station in droves to fight for our country, to fight for other countries, and to lay down their life for a greater good. Um, John 15, 13, and I, I know Jake read this last week, but there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. I went into the deepest, darkest state of depression again because I realized that even if I wanted to lay down my life for somebody else, in this capacity, I could not because I had been blacklisted by the military from ever serving again because I was a dishonorable man. And then I had to remember, it was over nine years ago that I had read that book. I read that book that said that God forgave me. And so on the cover of my book, and I don't know if you guys have seen it, um, it's been posted all over social media, um, but this is the book that I wrote. Um, this is kind of like a representation of identity. The red and the white is a flag. It's the United States Cavalry flag, and I was in the U.S. Cavalry, so I identified myself as being a Cavalry Scout. On the middle is a dog tag, and a dog tag is what you give a soldier to identify them when they die in combat. If you can't figure out who it is, they can tell who it is by the dog tag. The name, David C. Mike, this is my name, and it was how I identify myself and how my parents identified me, which isn't even that unique because me and my dad have the same name, but that's who, what people call me. The prison number I put on here instead of my social security for obvious reasons. Um, but the prison number identified me as a convict. Um, I was a criminal, a convict, an ex-con now, and a dishonorable man. Blood type, usually that's on a dog tag. And as a human being, if you don't have blood in your system, you will die. This is what makes us human, it's what keeps us alive. I can share that with somebody if I want to, um, but still, if you don't have it, you're gonna die. And then Christian is the re religious label that I picked for myself. You know, I affiliate myself with Christ, so therefore I'm a Christian. But these are all labels. This is not who I am. And if you also look at this cover, this is the blood of Christ washing me and my identity clean. This white spot is what Jesus sees. This is what God sees in all of us. We are clean, we're free, we are released from the burdens of our past and we do not have to be identified by our past any longer because of what Christ did on the cross. Um, there's a verse in the Bible, uh, 1 Corinthians 6.11, and before that there's a bunch of states of depravity that man can find himself in. But after that, it says, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of, of our God. So we do not have to be defined by our past if we have a relationship with Christ. Um, my life now is pretty awesome. It's challenging just like everybody else's. And I'm glad um, that God saw fit to rescue me so that I can stand here and, and share with you now. So let me ask you, what is your story? What is it that you have to share with somebody Maybe you think you're too messed up for God to use you, but I don't know if you guys noticed, if when you read the Bible and you read all those stories from the Old Testament, how many of those people had messed up lives and were messed up people? All of them. And you know why? Because the only kind of person that exists in this world are messed up people. So um, there's no need to clean up or get your act together. Um, God meets us where we are, and not only can he redeem anyone at any time, anywhere, but he can use our mess for his message or our story for his glory. My family and I are blown away by the way God has used my story to impact others. Um, there are people trying to understand what in their incarcerated family members are going through. I'm receiving, you know, messages on Facebook and, and various forms of so social media that there's hope out there through my story. Um, I had a drug addict uh, message me and tell me that she read my blog post before the book came out just to not use. And that was powerful. Um, there was a woman who forgave her husband who was a drug addict because she read my story and, she's, and he abused her and his family members. And she read my story and realized that because God forgave her, 
the way that he forgave me, that she needed to forgive him, and she reached out to him and forgave him. Um, there, was people, there was somebody that reached out in hopes for her marriage to heal through the power of prayer because of part of my story where people prayed for me and God intervened. Um, there are people looking for answers to deal with the shame that um, they have connected with their own felony conviction or their own jail time or their own mistakes in life. I had a woman order 30 copies of my book to take to prisons physically and hand them to inmates who need to hear the message of grace and forgiveness. If I had never told my story, these things may have never happened. Maybe you don't think you have a story because your life is perfect or you've never done anything wrong. So go ahead and raise your hand now if that fits you. That's what I thought. So <laughs> we have all struggled with something. We're all struggling with something right now or we'll struggle with something in the future. Someone out there needs to know that they are not alone. You can share your experience, what's going on in your life right now or something that you have overcome. Or you can just share God's love. You could be the person to lead them to the light. In 1 Peter 2.9, another verse that Jake said last week, um, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Sometimes he uses other people to do that. I want to read to you something that I um, got from a book called For People of the Second Chance. It's by Mike Foster. If you're looking for a great book to read, I've read this four times. This would be, of course, after you've read Dishonor. Okay. Shameless plug. All right. <laughs> Um, God uses our broken past to help others. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given us. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. When we suffer, God comforts. Then with him, we can comfort others. Your past does not disqualify you from impacting others. Your failures do not rob you of your authority. Your losses do not make you weak. Your frustrated passions do not make you foolish. When you surrender those to God and walk with him through the darkness, he not only brings you out on the other side, but he breathes new life into your soul. Your checkered past is now an asset. Your failures resurface as wisdom. Your losses make you stronger, and your passion becomes a reliable guide. God uses broken things to make broken things beautiful again. Um, as I get close to closing here, I want to invite the band to come back up. Please don't think that because I um, believe, please don't think that I believe that just because I made it out of prison, that I told my story or wrote a book that I have arrived, because we never fully arrive. Not in this lifetime, not on this earth. I am still human, broken and struggling, just like everybody else. Our failures can resurface as more failure unless we remain humble, we remain rooted in Christ, and remember that, uh, where we came from with our past. It's only if we are in constant process with God. If we lean daily on his power and surrender to his will, he will give life to our stories. Someone in the world needs to hear your story, you need to share your story. Even if it's just one person, with God breathing life into your story, you can make a difference. I want to go ahead and pray right now. God, I ran and you chased after me. I fell and you picked me up. In a relentless pursuit of my heart, you never, never gave up on me. Thank you for making your presence known and for putting all the people in my life that led me back to you. 
God, use my story to reach others the way you reached out to me and help the people in this room realize that through you, they have a powerful story to share. Thank you, guys.